Romans chapter 6 begins on page 942 of your pew Bible. I encourage you to pull that out and turn there and follow along as we're going to go verse by verse. Also, to remind you, those blank three by five cards in the pew and the gel pen that's there is there to encourage you to consider taking notes. Because I can promise you, if you will just make one note out of every sermon for a year, it will change your life. Take that idea, whatever it is, whatever you found important. I shout, write this down, you write it down, or it's something else. You take that home, you look at it again throughout the week, you come back, you do it again next week, it will change your life. Romans chapter 6, verse 1, before we get started, the big idea. The Christian life is a walk through this life to the next with the mind of the next life in the body of this life. You're on a pilgrimage. You're on a journey with an immortal mind in a mortal body. That makes it tough to feel like an immortal, even though you are one. It's hard to feel like it. I don't know how you are in the morning. It's not just me. And uh, I know it's, it's genetic. A couple of my kids, it's not every kid I have, but apparently our, our new puppy dog has the same problem. You wake up and you're actually not awake for like 30 minutes. And people are like, hi, how are you doing? You're like, uh, like you just, you can't even do it, right? Now, maybe you're not like that, but I'm sure there's some part of your life that you can imagine wherein you don't, you don't feel immortal. Christianity is the promise that you are though. And the mind, which is able, even when you don't feel immortal, to believe you are immortal, is the gift of the Holy Spirit to you. God, the Holy Spirit, inhabits you to empower you to believe you are immortal, even in the face of your own pending death. One of the most disturbing things about the last two years, three years, are we going on three almost now? Two years has been how many Christians have shown how afraid of death they are. How afraid they are to let go. How little they believe what Solomon said in the book of Ecclesiastes, that the day of your death is better than the day of your birth. Now don't get me wrong, your birth's a good thing. You are coming out of the womb a created being. God made you. He loves you. However, you're also a sinner born of Adam's flesh and doomed to die. The day of your death is the day that, depending, you either find punishment and perdition, or, but that's not you, you're in Christ, is the day that the resurrection you already trust in becomes all that you ever know. That is, you're released from your sin, you rest in Christ, and you will see the bliss that will follow you into that final day of immortality where your body comes out of the grave too. And so again, to repeat what Solomon said, the day of your death is better than the day of your birth. This is amplified by Romans chapter six, where it says that you died in Christ. Your death has already come. Are you baptized? Then you're not alive anymore. Not the same way everybody else is. You're alive in a new way with Christ's life. All right, let's go verse by verse and see this thing play out. 
chapter 6, verse 1 is building on chapter 5, verse 21. So I'm going to read that verse first here. It says, as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Do you remember from last week, this is all about how Adam brought sin And with sin brought death, and death reigned over all men. So just as one man did that, one man, Jesus Christ, brings life. And by his single righteous act, letting himself be crucified for the world, he brings life for all men. Verse 1 of chapter 6, then, what shall we say to this? Right? What shall we say then? And he gets ahead of his opponents here. He asks the question he knows that the skeptic and the hypocrite is going to ask, which is, well, if we're saved by grace, doesn't that just mean that we can do whatever we want? In fact, if the more grace he shows, the more sin there is, can't we make there be more grace by sinning more? And he's going to dismiss this. He's just going to dismiss this. But he asks the question again, are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Look at his answer. By no means. Stupid question, he says. Stupid question. Of course, having been saved from evil by good, you're not going to make more good by trying to make more evil. You sound like an idiot. Actually, you sound like an unbeliever. When you ask that question, no, we do not embrace sin by believing we've been saved from sin and knowing that we still are stuck with sin until the day when the sinless one frees us from this body of sin. Having the new mind is a reason to fight against the sin that you find dwelling within you. Now, I just use that word sin a whole bunch. And I think that word is an undefined word. It's indefinite in our society. People don't know what it means. Remember, we worked on this a little bit in Romans 1, 2, and 3. It means lawlessness. It means godlessness. It means impiety. It means evil. And it means to be curved in on oneself. That whatever I see, whatever I do, even if it's for you, it's going to benefit me. That's sin. And he asked, shall we do this all the more? By no means. And now he's going to bring up baptism as the proof that you should not sin anymore, which is really fascinating. Romans chapter 6 is a a marvelous place to bring your non-Lutheran, non-Catholic friends and neighbors to show them what the Bible says about baptism, even though it's really not about baptism. But it will be for a moment here. He says, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? He asks that question to the one who says, Can I just do more evil to make more good happen? He says, Don't you know you were baptized into Jesus' death? That's his answer. Now, for that to be true, baptism has to be more than just plain water. And we take the water, and we bring it to it, and we take the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, 
according to Jesus' own institution, when he said, go make disciples like this, wash them with my name in some water, when that happens, it's more than just plain water. It is the water included in God's command and combined with God's word, and therefore a lavish washing of regeneration. A, a promise is the best way to see this. Do you not know that baptism is a promise that you're dead in Jesus? That's his question. Yeah, verse 5, verse 4. We were buried, therefore, with him, that's with Jesus. You're buried with Jesus by baptism, by a promise from God given to you, into death. Why? To leave you dead? No. In order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Don't you know? That you were killed in Jesus so that you wouldn't live the way you were living before? Don't you know that you were killed in Jesus so you can know you're going to live forever? Don't you know that the resurrection has already been placed into you, heart, soul, and mind? And even though you're going to journey through this life with a body of sin, that is not all that you are anymore? Don't you know? But it is glory to do good and to turn away from evil. You were buried with Christ for that reason, that you might walk in newness of life now. Now this, this is not a law, okay? It's very easy to hear this as, oh, okay, I got saved, now I gotta be good. Nope, that's not what he said. That's not what he said. He said, because you're saved, God is going to make you good. Don't you know that? You who ask the question, can't I be evil? No, he's saving you from that. He's going to make you be good. Okay, so where's my bullet point list of good to do? What should I do this week to be good? That's, no, you're thinking about it wrong. What's going to happen is as you live the selfish life in your body, the Spirit's going to convict you about it every time it happens, and sin, frankly, is just going to hurt you more then it hurts other people. They're wandering in their sin. They're bringing about the punishment of their sin on them, but they never see it. They're always blaming everybody else. But you're going to be awakened to be like, oh, I did that. Oh, that was wrong. Oh, Lord, have mercy. Oh, how could I be a Christian? And that's an important question because he said you are. Because you've been buried in Christ in your baptism. That's how. And again, that's the walk. The walk is to believe you're a Christian even when you don't feel like you're a Christian. Even when you can't see enough of being a Christian in your life, you trust his word over your word. And the fact is that while you'll never look in the mirror and be like, wow, I really made it today. Instead, your neighbors are going to see you becoming a godly person, a pious person, a humble person, someone who actually walks in the simple knowledge but you're never going to die because Jesus is alive. He is risen. Hallelujah. Verse 5 is the same idea. He's making the point. If we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. So, so baptism brings you death and resurrection. You already got the death that happened in history. You're buried with Christ. He's already raised you're standing here with a body that's dying. But because you know you're dead in the cross in him already, because that's what he says, well, therefore, you can know the resurrection's coming for you too. 
Verse 6. We know that our old self, the word there in the Greek is not self, it's not neuter. It's the word man, like the word Adam, right? Because Adam died and we died. That old Adam, that old man is in all of us. If you're a woman, you still got an old man. I don't just mean your father, although that's actually kind of the point too, because your sin comes from your father. Long story, but it's true. The old man within you, we know that the old man was crucified with Christ in order that the body of sin, this this tent we're living in now, might be brought to nothing. That is, so that you would know your sin that you have now is meaningless. It's meaningless. Does it hurt your neighbor? Yes, it does. But in terms of judgment day, it's meaningless because it's in Christ now so that you would no longer be enslaved to sin. So the point isn't, so now I get to hurt my neighbor more. The point is, now that I don't have to worry about making myself look good on judgment day, I can actually see my neighbor for the first time. I can see my neighbor for who he really is. Not someone I've got to do good to so God will be good to me, but someone who actually just needs me to be a good neighbor. Yes? So... It is the knowledge that we are saved, the knowledge that our sin means nothing in God's sight now that gives us the mental power, the spiritual power to actually fight back against it. Otherwise, again, you just end up trying to do good for yourself. Like, if I'm out there trying to be good to you, so that Jesus will be happy with me, honestly, I don't care about you then. I don't. I'm just trying to get something for me. Christianity just kills that by saying, no, 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 he already loves you. He already has you. He's chosen you. He's purchased you. And believing that, the trust in that, is a whole new mindset. So, wait a minute, I belong to him? Yeah, you belong to him. You know, I, can't, I, I, I cannot sin anymore? Yes, in one real sense. You cannot sin anymore. What does this mean? Ah, look around and watch as the Holy Spirit will not take the law out of your life. He won't make you love your neighbor and love your God less. He's going to make you see just how good that law is, that you don't need a list of do not murder, do not uh, steal, do not commit adultery. You just know the works of darkness when you see them, and you don't want to do them. When you hear me talk about it, you're like, yeah, that's bad. Why? Because the Holy Spirit has awakened you to not be under the law, but to be in the law, to have the law written on your heart. Now, I'm not saying there's never a place for Christians to hear, do not steal, and do not commit adultery. There's a place for that, but that's not going to make you a better person. Remember from last week, the law came to increase sin. What makes you a better person? Jesus says you are one. He promises it. And trust in that promise is a better person. Yeah? Okay. Verse 7. A little bit of an aside here he makes. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Law is only binding on you until you die. That's kind of the founding idea here. And so, as it's taught in other places, marriage is only binding on you until one of you dies. In fact, marriage is, you remember the promise, until 
Death do us part. Okay, so, so marriage as a law only binds you until you die. Based on that point, he's saying that once you die then, sin can no longer accuse you, and you've died in Christ already because you're baptized into him. So sin can never accuse you. That's verse 7. Verse 8. Now if, or you could say, since we have died with Christ, we believe we will also live with him. So not only am I no longer accused, I'm immortal now. And I can know that. I can live this life walking not toward my grave as if it's the end, but toward my grave as if it's, in one very real sense, the beginning. Although it's not, because it began already. It's begun already in you. Verse 9, we know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. He's just emphasizing the resurrection's a permanent reality. We're walking toward it. Death no longer has dominion over him, right? Death reigned from Adam, but now Christ reigns instead. There's been a change. Verse 10. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. Great verse. Yeah. It's about the universal atonement that Jesus Christ achieved at the cross. Don't let anyone tell you he only died for some. The death he died, he died to sin once for all. It's all complete. And now the life he lives... He lives before God in total freedom. Mankind has been restored. The new creation has come and it shall never fall. It shall never be taken. Are there people who don't want to be part of it? Yep. There will be people who won't be part of it. That's on them. Not so for you though. You're part of it. You're part of it. Yes. Verse 11. So since you're part of it, you must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. That doesn't mean you're never going to sin. It means when you do sin, you consider that that sin doesn't separate you from Christ. That's what it means to consider yourself dead from sin. Does that mean you're going to go try to sin more? No, he just said that's a stupid thing to say. But it doesn't undo the truth that even when you find sin in your life, evil, selfishness, curved in on yourself, even when you find that, you are free to say, that's not even me anymore. He'll say that in chapter 7. That's just sin living in me. Does that mean I let it get out of hand? No, I fight back against it. But I don't consider it worthy to separate me from Christ. It can't. It's dead. And I'm alive in him now. That's how you are to consider yourself, it says. Verse 11, again, I say, highlight that one if you can. Make that one your note for the week if you don't have a note or five yet. Verse 12, because it's dead, you can fight back. Verse 12, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Because you know it's dead. You don't have to kind of whine about it anymore. Oh, it's so hard, all the temptations. I can never, I mean, I, I get it. But like, you don't have to. You can actually just say, this is not me now. Does that mean you're never going to fail or make a mistake again? No, but that trajectory, that direction, that goal of keeping the sin inside of you rather than letting it get out of your mouth and done with your hands, that is a journey that God has promised he will bring you on. You follow. Your life doesn't change overnight. You don't stop bad habits in a weekend. 
but Christianity is a journey of having an immortal mind in a mortal body. And the further you go, the more your mind gets to get it. And the less your body gets to be in charge. Do not, it says, present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness. That is, don't let your body tell you what to do. Oh, but my heart really wants to. Don't let your heart tell you what to do. Stop offering up yourself as if you don't have any self-control. That's one of the fruits of the Spirit. It's a promise, not a law. It's a promise. And so present yourself to God as those who have been brought from death to life. Are you, are you, are you in the place right now where you're like, oh man, pastor, what he's saying sounds so good, but I'm just feeling guilty. I feel like I can't do it. Good. You're exactly where you're supposed to be. Now believe that that doesn't mean anything. And then say, Jesus, help me. Go ahead, just to say it. There you go. That's presenting yourself to God as an instrument of righteousness. He's going to answer that prayer. He's going to teach you to believe what the word says more than what your heart feels. And the beauty of that is gradually your heart's going to feel some of it too. Although the war, the war will never stop. Not till the day you die. We're headed to chapter 7. Now, if, you're, if you want to hear it all, you've got to come back next week. Chapter 7 is going to deal with the rest of this fight. Wherein you'll see it's not all victory. It's not all glory. It's not all health and wellness. Oh, no, no, no. But it is conviction. It is certainty. And it is peace of conscience. All right. So verse 14, sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under the law, but under grace. It's not about what you do. It's about what Jesus has already done for you. And because of that, sin will have no dominion over you. And that's a promise. It's not a rule you got to keep. It's not a ladder you got to climb. It's a guarantee. And as your mind believes it, you will have more self-control. You will. What then? Verse 15. Are we to sin because we are under, not under the law, but under grace? Same question as earlier, right? So should we do more evil then? He already answered this. But by no means, he says, by no means. Do you not know, verse 16, that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are the slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. Which he is saying here, look, I'm preaching the promise to you. I'm telling you that you are going to go to paradise because Jesus has got you. It is also true. You can fall away. You know how you fall away? You decide sin doesn't matter. Not that it's dead in Christ. It doesn't matter. I'll I'll just do what I want. You do that again, and you've presented yourself as a slave to the devil. And if the devil comes back with seven more spirits just as evil as himself, and he takes your house that's been swept clean, and he makes it his new desecrated temple, well then, that was what you did. The promises are about what Christ will do. And is there a warning implicit here? Yes, there's a warning implicit here. Don't look a gift horse in the mouth. When God says, here's grace, grab it. Not because you can, but because it's there. Grab it. Thanks be to God, verse 17, that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of the teaching to which you were committed. The standard of the teaching, the pattern of sound words. He is risen. Hallelujah. Christ has died. Christ is risen. 
Christ will come again. Can somebody testify? Hey, I got it. Thank you very much. The pattern of sound teaching, the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, the Athanasian Creed. That's what this is getting at. Not those things. They weren't written yet. But that there is a testimony that is so true that you have to be a liar to deny it's what the Scriptures say. Augsburg Confession, Formula of Concord, Small Catechism, same idea. You become obedient to the heart of the truth of who Jesus is and what he's done. And verse 18, having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. Again, that means your conscience as a Christian is on overdrive. When you do wrong, you feel it more than those who are not Christians. They go out and they stub their foot. This isn't really like a sin, right? But imagine that stubbing your toe is a sin. They go out, stub their toe, and go, ow, that hurts so much, but they don't know what they kicked. You go out, you stub your toe, it hurts so much, but you know what you kicked. And you're able to look at it and then turn to Jesus and say, I see it. Thank you. Thank you for taking it. Yes? Slaves of righteousness. Your mind is under his leadership now. Verse 19, I am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. That is, again, he's, it almost can sound like a legalistic system. And for the unbeliever who's listening, they think it is. But the whole point is, again, you've been purchased by God. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. Sanctification means holiness. It doesn't mean righteousness. What do I mean by that? Sanctification means to be set apart, not to be good. Now, when God sets something apart, will it be good? Yes. When God does something that's good, is it set apart? Yes, but they're different things. And the point here then again is not to get back on a treadmill of now you can work towards sanctification and really get there. The point is toward believing that you are sanctified, that you are set apart, that you are unique, that you are holy, that you have been called out and that this wasn't your doing, it's been done to you. And again, that you would believe it's true that you would believe you are immortal now. Verse 20, For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. You see that with everybody out there in the world today. They're free with regard to righteousness. They don't got to do anything good. They just go live for themselves. Man, they reap that benefit. In fact, it says the next thing, What fruit were you getting at that time from those things of which you are now ashamed? I could make examples, but you don't need them. You got them in your head, you know. For the end of those things is death. Verse 22, But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. Again, to knowing you're set apart, to knowing you belong to God, to knowing you're on a journey through this life with the mind of the next life in the body of this life. You're set free in this. Four, verse 23, great gospel in a nutshell, law gospel in a nutshell verse. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The payment for sin is death. What you deserve from God is death. What you've inherited from Adam is death. Your king, according to your nature, is death. All that you have to look forward to is death. And by the way, taxes before you get there. 
But Christianity is a new world, a new mankind, a new life, which means a new body is coming. It's here in Christ, it's coming for you, but the new mind, it's already here. Awakening you to see how good your God is, so that even though the world looks so bad, you know where it's going. Is everlasting innocence and righteousness and blessedness. It's going to be so very good. In the name of Jesus, amen.